Coming up on today's show, a shocking discovery in Kamloops last week has sparked conversation across the country and on the show this morning. Also, now that we're moving into the vaccinated world of COVID, do we need to change the rules around quarantining when you cross the border? And a tragic fatal bear attack in our province last week. Are we seeing more bears in Alberta this spring? A story um, broke late last week that it's absolutely horrific. And, and if you're like me, it was it was jarring. It was startling. Scientists have used ground-penetrating radar to confirm the bodies of at least 215 children, some as young as three years old, have been buried at the site of a former residential school in the B.C. interior, the Kamloops Residential School. 215 children in unmarked graves, not given proper burials. In most cases, their families weren't even notified. Officials barely even recorded their passing in most cases. 215 children in this country. And not that long ago either. That school operated until 1969. It is confirmation of one of the findings in the Truth and Reconciliation Report from years ago. Huge numbers of children died in these schools. And it also confirms what a lot of First Nations communities have always known. This is proof of what they have known about in these communities for a very, very long time. Uh, I need some help trying to sort through all of this because, as I said, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me that this took place in our country, um, you know, not all that long ago. As I said, that school operated up until 1996. So we're not talking that long ago. Um, in different capacities, 69 as a residential school, and then it became a, a, a boarding school up until 1996. Um, joining us to talk about this now and give us a little bit of clarity around this is Dr. Crystal Fraser, who is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Native Studies and Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Bud Greensby, good morning. It's great to be here today. Thank you. Um, just as, as somebody who studies Indigenous issues uh, in, in relation to our country, what was your reaction to this finding? Was it as jarring and as startling to you as it was to me? Unfortunately not. Um, I'm, I'm Gwich'ia Gwich'in, originally from Inuvik, Northwest Territories, where one of the most notorious or perhaps form of, formerly notorious Indian residential yeah. schools in Canada operated Grolier Hall. Um, my mother and grandmother were institutionalized at these schools, and I've now spent about the last 10 years engaged in research on Indian residential schooling in this country. And and so, unfortunately, it's, it was not shocking, um, very uh, sad um, and, and heartbreaking, but unfortunately, you know, as... Um, we engage in more research as we work with community, as we start to ask new kinds of questions. These things are, are going to keep happening, unfortunately. Yeah, and Crystal, like you say, um, in the communities affected and in where the survivors are and people who had family in these schools, this is not news to them, right? They've known about this right from the beginning. Exactly. And, and I mean, this is really a concerning thing, um, you know, like accounts of sexual assault and uh, other criminal activities that happened at these schools, at these institutions, um, often Indigenous peoples and communities have been, you know, uh, sounding the alarm for decades now. Yeah. But um, it, it really takes something monumental, something shocking, as you say, um, in order to 
really get, you know, broader Canadians engaged in residential schooling histories. So the process now, as I understand it, they're working with coroners and they're working with people from museums, if you can believe it, to try and document who these children are. Because in many cases, you know, not only were they not given a proper burial doctor, these deaths weren't even recorded in any meaningful way. For sure. And, and you know, that is definitely something that is unsurprising to me. And and so um, I was not a part of this investigation in Kamloops, so I cannot speak to those specific yeah. details. However, there, there were many ways that children um, died while institutionalized. And so we, you know, you have disease, including tuberculosis, smallpox, influenza, starvation, malnutrition. Um, given the work with farm equipment and industry, there were many accidents, runaways. Um, we have more nefarious activities, such as assault and murder. Um, these schools were also not well-built, not well-maintained, poor ventilation. So we have concerns about fire and about unsanitary conditions, but also medical procedures gone wrong. And I'm thinking particularly about forced abortions at these residential schools, um, broken hearts. And, and I mean... Indigenous peoples in this country continue to lose their lives because of residential schools through suicide. And so it'll definitely be very, um, very interesting, but also a a very important part um, of the story to know the circumstances of how these children died and when. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, We can talk about that in a sec, but first, you mentioned something that I think is really important here. You know, the ongoing impact uh, of these residential schools and suicides, it it has not gone away in in any way, shape, or form. This discovery last week and, and this news last week and the added attention to it, what does that do for the people who survived and their families and things like that? Is it more trauma? Is it closure? Do we have any idea? I mean, obviously, it's going to be very, very powerful for them, right? You know, it's it's so very difficult, but that's a really important question. And so first, I'm going to say, if, if there is anyone listening, the National Indian Residential Schools line is open, and you can contact them at 1-866-925-4419. Again, sorry to take up time, no, but I think that's this so is important. important. Um, one more time, one 866 925-4419. And I really think that there is a mixed reaction among community. Um, in a way, the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, when that started, you know, a decade ago, um, that really initiated a lot of important conversations in community for Indigenous peoples. And I think that the TRC uh, did some great work in, in getting that story out there as a part of our Canadian history. But there are people today, um, intergenerational survivors, perhaps like myself, um, community members who still really grapple with the lived effects of Indian residential schools. Just speaking personally, you know, as I was undertaking this research, but also trying to learn my Indigenous language, Dinjijuginjik, there was a lot of feelings of of just anger that, Mm. like, why should I have to work so hard to, to learn something that that I should already know. Um, and so I think that there definitely are people in Indigenous communities who may retreat, they may take care, they may not join these conversations, um, which 100% look after yourself. That's 
what our number one goal needs to be at the end of the day. On the other hand, you know, now that these stories and accounts and histories are becoming um, more prominent, more a part of the discourse in this country, um, I think more Indigenous peoples are finding the strength to uh, speak nationally. Um, But again, I will say that that is not an easy thing. You know, in in my career, um, I have literally had death threats about talking about reconciliation, like not not even, you know, um, a very divisive topic. And, And so I think at the end of the day, we're just all looking to take care of ourselves, but also through this work, uh, also taking care of our ancestors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, speaking of the work in the TRC and, 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 and the reconciliation movement and all that, does this push that forward? I think it really elevates it to a new level for a lot of people. Do you think there'll be added momentum on this work? You know, I sure hope so. Um, I will say that, you know, in 2009, uh, the TRC asked, the Harper government for 1.5 million in funding to search for unmarked graves. Uh, that funding ask was um, rejected, and so now we have the TRC 94 calls to action. Actions 71 through 76 speak specifically about children who died unmarked graves and cemeteries, and so. Um, I encourage, you know, all of your listeners um, to sit down, write your elected representative a letter, um, ask them what they're doing to put forward the 94 calls to action. Because, I, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, not not everyone is going to feel comfortable talking about this in public, um, but everyone can, you know, sit down and, and write an email. Um, and so that brings me a lot of hope. Um, but on on the other hand, you know, Historian Ian Mosby, um, he, uh, along with Eva Jewell, has kept track of how many of the 94 calls to action government Mm -hmm. has accomplished. And, you know, in 2019, nine of the 94 calls had been achieved. In 2020, we actually went backwards and only eight of the 94 calls had been done. And so I think this is... um, a moment for momentum. This is a moment to push the envelope forward, um, but also a moment to just really acknowledge the deep grief and suffering that Indigenous communities are are going through right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much work to be done around here. Um, and, you know, in terms of uncovering other mass graves like this, we know there are others. I just read that uh, they've started an exploration at... Um, a facility in Shubenacadie out in the Maritimes. So this is a coast-to-coast situation. Um, this is certainly not a one-off. There are far more instances likely to be uncovered in Canada, very similar to this, right? Absolutely agree. And I mean, one of the things that we do know is that, uh, so for instance, in Alberta, Alberta had 25 Indian residential schools, and each residential school had an official graveyard most had an unofficial graveyard. And so when we look locally, um, you know, and and I believe this should be community-driven, that we need to wait for First Nations and other communities to initiate this work on their own timeline. Um, But there are at least 25 graveyards with Indigenous children from residential schools uh, in this province. Um, And, and, Approximately one-fifth of all Indian residential schools' deaths 
deaths were in Alberta. And so that puts us at a very minimum, a very conservative number of, of 800 children in Alberta. And so as this work goes forward, um, definitely will not be surprising to unfortunately see that number increase. Oh, that's horrific. Um, you know, and a lot of people listening are, are texting me and, and asking a question that certainly came to mind. As they do these explorations and these discoveries, um, Will there be accountability? We talk a lot about the government. It was the Roman Catholic Church that mm-hmm. ran these schools, the people who worked in there. Um, are we past the point of any accountability? I mean, some of these deaths were murder, for goodness sake. They were. Um, and, I mean, one of the things that the TRC did, and, and I mean, I'm so grateful for their work, However, they really focused on on the system as a whole, what what genocide really looks like for Indigenous families across Canada. And while that is a very important question, you know, we learned very little about who who the administrators were, who were the missionaries, yeah. who were the te- who were the teachers, the care so called you know air quote caregivers. Um, and and as you say, you know. This system uh, formally came to an end in 1996, 25 years ago, and I would bet my bottom dollar that there are still several folks who worked at these institutions who are still with us today. So who are they? Right. Yeah, exactly. And can they be traced back to any of these children? Uh, As I said, it's just it's a shocking situation. Um, Doctor, thank you so much for spending some time this morning. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for making time for this really um, important story. And um, I'm I'm also a co-author of, of 150 Acts of Reconciliation. If, if any of your listeners are wondering, you know, how can I get involved? How can I learn more about it? Um, 150 Acts of Reconciliation on ActiveHistory.ca. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. You too. That's Dr. Crystal Fraser, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Native Studies and the Faculty of Arts at University of Alberta with some very deep personal connections to residential schools in our country. Canada's quarantine rules for travelers arriving in the country. As you know, they're um, not all that straightforward in many ways, and in many ways they're not all that effective. You do have to stay in a government-approved hotel for 72 hours, Unless you really don't want to and you're willing to pay a fine, then you don't have to. And if you come across a land border, those rules don't apply. So there's always been more than a few issues around this, as we know. Now we're moving into the post-pandemic vaccinated and unvaccinated world, and the advisory panel that works with Ottawa is suggesting they make some changes. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is on that panel, and he joins us now. Um, Doctor, thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to chat. So last week, your panel made a number of suggestions to the federal government around this international traveler situation, and some of them at least meant to address some of the issues with the current system. The bottom line here, the mandatory quarantine hotel plan needs to go away, if not in all situations, in most situations, right? It's not working as well as it could. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think the, the way that we looked at it was, listen, we're in a period of rapid transition, yeah. right? The, the, the plan we have now, currently, is a pre-vaccine era plan, and we're in an era of mass vaccination. Many people have had a first dose, still got to get everyone a first dose, and then we're starting to roll out second doses now, and probably by the end of the summer, anyone who 
wants a second dose will probably have had access to a second dose. Your border measures should be kept up to date with the current risk and threats to Canada. And, and of course, we're in a rapidly changing landscape, so the border measures should keep up with this. The policy should definitely keep up with this. Yeah, and doesn't that sort of go hand in hand with the fact, the push to get everybody vaccinated? There has to be a benefit to it, right? You have to be able to oh, see that yeah. th- this, this is the reason we're doing it. 100%. I mean, like, you can't ignore that the vaccines are very, very effective. They're not perfect, but they're very, very effective. They afford the person who's vaccinated significant protection from getting this infection. If you're unlucky enough to get this infection, you're afforded significant protection from having a severe outcome. And all the evidence is mounting that you're, even if you are infected, you're just much less likely to transmit this to others. Like that's what they do. And that's great. We have to acknowledge that. And we can, the whole point of this is to get, or shift, uh, you know, along that spectrum toward normalcy. Exactly, yeah. So now, in the report that you gave to the federal government, you sort of identified, because nothing is going to be clear-cut even after we get this, right? I mean, there's going to be a lot of different categories and subcategories. So you've basically identified five different kinds of travelers. Let's go through them quickly if we can. First of all is the exempt travelers, the, the, the essential workers, the ones who've basically been able to cross the border already. What do you think they need to be doing? I mean, if they're vaccinated, they, like, first of all, they've been crossing the border the whole time. Uh, rightfully so, without vaccines. And now there, there is a push to really get to, in many provinces to vaccinate, for example, truckers. There's a great program on the North Dakota-Manitoba border, for example, to, to vaccinate uh, truckers, right? Like, <laughs> we need them. Yeah, <laughs> they are yeah. truly essential. We don't make enough stuff in Canada. We need them for essential things like food, <laughs> you know, like, so, so let's protect them. They're going back and forth one way or another. May as well make sure they're vaccinated. But yeah, they don't need to quarantine. They don't need to be quarantining at all. Now, the, the big one is the unvaccinated travelers, right? That That's going to be the issue. The ones that aren't vaccinated, even as most people are, what are we saying what they need to do? Does it, everything stay the same for them? No, I mean, obviously this is contentious, but, uh, and, and I appreciate that people are going to have strong opinions one way or another, but this is, while we're in an interim period, while COVID-19 is still a public health threat in Canada and elsewhere, uh, the, the point is they, they can quarantine. They don't need to quarantine for 14 days. They don't need to quarantine in a hotel. They quarantine in, you know, their, wherever it is they live for uh, uh, seven days. And if you've got your negative test, gets you out of quarantine at seven days. Okay, so much, much less onerous. It's a much yeah. easier process, way better. Absolutely. Now, the interesting one, and we know this is a big issue in a lot of different areas of the country, is this half-vaxxed situation, right, where you've got one of your two doses. Um, what's the protocol for them you recommend? So we know one dose gives uh, significant protection, but not enough. Like you could still get this infection and transmit it. So you still need uh, testing before you travel back into the country, negative testing before you travel back into the country. When you arrive, there's testing at the border. Very important to get testing when you come in. you got to have a good understanding of what virus you have in your country and what virus you may be importing into your country. You quarantine until your test on arrival is negative. If it's negative, you're good to go. Is that perfect? No, it's not perfect. It will catch most, but certainly not all people with infections coming into the country. But but again, you're aiming for really, really good, not perfection. Exactly, yeah. So the gold standard here, of course, is fully vaccinated. Are they free and clear? That's it? They're back to normal? None of this nonsense anymore? Essentially, you're still going to get a... You don't need pre-travel swabs, so you don't need that um, pre-travel swab. And then when when you cross the border... You will get a swab. I think that's fair because we know that people still can have this infection and, and transmit it. You've got to have a good understanding of what's coming into the country if people are infected. But you don't need to quarantine. You know, you're, okay. you're good to go when you come in. Listen, if your test comes back positive, you'll you'll, sure. you'll get informed and you should 
you know, sit this one out for a few days, and that's okay. I think that's reasonable. You don't want to infect other people, but uh, we know the risk of that is really, really low. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's just if people are vaccinated, they're afforded a lot more freedom to travel and cross the border. Simultaneous, that makes it a lot more simple, and it also provides Canadians with a lot more freedom to to travel. Now, Doc, it it sounds great, but there's... I, I can see the bureaucracy and, and and actually managing this program could be complicated. First of all, how do we know the level of vaccination for a person coming in? I mean, there's no standardized system, really. I mean, provinces have this, states have this. How do we know the vaccination state of somebody coming into the country? Yep, that's going to be a huge issue. And that's not an issue that's just uh, a Canadian issue. That's a massive yeah. global issue. So there's current efforts underway to standardize one status of vaccination. So I I honestly don't know the answer to this. I mean, that's way above my pay grade, but it's an extremely important thing to answer, right? You you need to know, right? And you need to know in a reliable way. You can always forge. We know there's people who can forge this. Maybe I'm just just totally thinking out loud here, right? Is there a standardized electronic way that this could be added to your travel documents? Is there, you know, a standardized, there's got to be a standardized global approach because quite frankly, I mean, forget what our personal values are. You know, some people like this, some people don't like this. Great, irrelevant in in one sense, because many countries around the world are going to be asking for proof of vaccination to cross an international border. People can choose to get vaccinated one way or another. That's their individual choice. Okay, People can choose to travel one way or another. That's their individual choice. But sovereign countries will determine who can and cannot come into their country. And if they want proof of vaccination, it doesn't matter what you feel and believe or choose to do or choose not to do. You won't be able to go in if you don't have proof of vaccination. So Canada has to also come up with a way to uh, essentially validate and st- uh, our, our, our vaccine status in a matter that enables Canadians who choose to be vaccinated to travel freely if we choose to do so. Yeah, it is going to be very, very complex. The other one is, okay, so now we're saying people no longer need to go to these government-mandated hotels and and quarantine there. You're saying they can just quarantine at home. How do we make sure they even have a plan, and how do we make sure they're following through with that 72-hour self-quarantine? Yeah, so so that's that's a great point. I mean, the same could be said for... How do we make, before we have those quarantine hotels, people had to still do have to quarantine at home, right? They have border uh, um, uh, officials who do make phone calls and occasional visits to uh, individual uh, individual homes to make sure people are right. where they should be. Um, is it perfect? No, of course not. And again, I don't think you can aim for perfection. You're aiming for good enough and something that's reasonable that keeps Canada safe, something that essentially prevents you know, outbreaks from occurring. And also, the, I think it's important to note that we, we need to have, it's important to know what's circulating out in the world and also in Canada. I think that's important. We've only seen well, how many variants of concern emerge overseas and then land yeah. in Canada. We've got to know what's happening. So the survey, the, the, I use the word surveillance. That's not the right word. My dad tells me not to use that word. People get scared when they hear the word surveillance. Testing. We need testing of people when they come into the country so we have a good understanding of, of what virus we're bringing into Canada. Hey, just before I let you go, there is one more category that we didn't touch on that's kind of interesting. Um, you're saying that those people who can prove they've had COVID in the last six months, somehow, and again, I don't know how that works, they um, should be you know, basically in the same category as fully vaccinated people, correct? Yeah, you're, you're the unli- it's very unlikely that you're going to get this infection again. Now, remember, these are just recommendations, right? Yes, yeah. The federal government 
can take them. They can leave them. They can cherry pick some of them. Like they can apply it whenever they feel it's appropriate to apply it. This is just a standardized way, a playbook, if you will, for when we take those next steps and start to reopen the border. Um, if I can ask, I mean, can this be a national program? I mean, we know that in Alberta, they're throwing the doors wide open. It could happen in a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, um, in Ontario, Ford is asking for more border restrictions and wants more quarantine and things like that. So, I mean, it's not going to apply universally, at least in the short term, is it? Well, I mean, the, the national borders are up to the are are are, are federal, right? right? Yeah. And so, so I mean, I think it's going to take again way above my pay grade here, but I mean, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of diplomacy between federal and provincial political leadership as to what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And again, this is just a playbook. I have no idea if they're going right, to accept yeah. this or some of this or other of it. But they asked us for a playbook on how to move forward in this transitionary period that we're in when more and more Canadians are vaccinated. We felt that this was an evidence-based and data-driven playbook. Doc, I appreciate the insight, and we'll look forward to seeing what the government does with it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who is a physician, and he is on that advisory panel that is working uh, with the federal government. He also works on the Ontario advisory panel. scary situation, a fatal grizzly bear attack in our province near Water Valley. It happened last Tuesday. Uh, And there was another attack uh, involving a grizzly bear earlier in the month. So um, we were talking about just how it seems to be maybe more bear activity this year, something we need to be more aware of. Uh, An update on that story from last Tuesday, they have found the bear involved in the attack. Uh, It was on a rural property near Calgary, the Water Valley area. That bear has been captured by Alberta Fish and Wildlife Enforcement Officers. They say that bear will now be euthanized. Um, they say on Saturday, near the site of the attack, they captured two, two large, mature female grizzlies. DNA test suggests the older of the two bears is the one that carried out this attack. Okay, so let's get some information on this. We're going to chat with um, Paul Fraser now. Uh, Paul is the chairman of Mountain View Bear Smart Society. Paul, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Yeah, hi. Yeah, I mean, this story uh, obviously catches a lot of attention. You know, it's a tragic situation, but it seems to me that, am I right or am I wrong? It seems like more bear activity this spring, or are we just hearing about more bear activity? What's going on? Yeah, I think we're just probably hearing about more bear activity. Um, It really varies from year to year. Um, but I know, for, for instance, just this, this, this uh, in month of May, we did have a lot more sightings. But we're, we're finding also that, that more people are, are aware of our website where they can report sightings. And so we're getting more sightings coming from different people. Uh, the, the thing is, too, is um, people are more prone to, to report grizzly bear sightings than they are to report black bear sightings. Sure. So we get both, both of those as well. So, But we do know that... The, the bear population in what we are in bear management area four, and the bear population, the grizzly bear population, has increased in this in this BMA from 2005 to 2018. It has almost doubled. Wow. Okay. So uh, far more likely that if you're out enjoying these areas, you may encounter a bear. Um, you know, with the case that we're talking about on Tuesday, the fatal attack near Water Valley, we know this woman was on her own property. Um, was the the you know, what they're saying, what they believe happened is she was simply out walking and startled this bear, came across this bear. Um, is that kind of the worst case scenario? I mean, that's typically what the last thing you want to do, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be the worst case scenario. And and it was an older, mature female, like you were mentioning before. Um, 
she she didn't have cubs with her, so she, she I think it was just the being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So she must have startled the bear, and then of course the bear has this defensive reaction. Right. She was killed. Now we know that. Um more people are heading out uh, into our provincial areas uh, due to the restrictions on travel and things like that. We're seeing more camping and, and things like that. Um, how, how do you prepare for that? I mean, you need to be bear aware, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so one of the things you really need to do is you, you should pre-plan for your outdoor activities. So there are various places you can go and, and, and look up, for instance, national parks, provincial parks, uh, even our, our Mountain View Bear Smart. We, we provide information of where bears are being sighted so you have a good idea okay if this area i'm going into are there, have there been bears sighted there and if there are then you can at least expect or anticipate uh, i mean all of alberta there's pretty much a lot of it is bear country but you you can pre-plan your outdoor activities and be aware of where you might expect to see bears now um let's try and get some of the information out today if we can um if I'm going out camping, and uh, whether there's bear there or not, what should I be taking with me? What can I do to best prepare myself for, you know, the inevitable encounter if it does happen? Yeah, well, the first thing, you really should have um, some sort of bear deterrent or defensive device that you are, that you are familiar with, and, and, you, and you have to be able to know how to use that device properly. It's primarily you want to use bear spray. Um, they, they have things like bear bangers and bear flares and stuff like that, but those can ignite in, in dry conditions like we're having right now, so we certainly don't recommend those. You can use an air horn, but the best thing, of course, is, is to have bear spray with you. Have it accessible. Don't have it in your backpack. Have it on your on, yeah. on the holster or chest and, and have it ready to be used. Um, no, uh, you really should be paying attention to, to um, your surroundings. Look for, for signs of bear. You, you know, you've got bear scats, you have tracks, you can, where they've turned overturned logs or rocks or something looking for food. If you go into an area where you anticipate that there's good bear food, then really you should be expecting bears there too. So just really pay attention to your surroundings when you're out and wandering around. And I've heard make noise. Yeah, make noise. Travel in groups. You're safer in groups than you are by yourself. Um, so if, and more, more people you have in a group that the more noise you're going to make anyway. And then if you do encounter a bear, you, you really want to stay together, keep your group together nice and tight. If you have a dog, that dog should be on a leash. It should not be free-ranging because it may go out and, and encounter a bear, and then the bear may be defensive, and that dog will come back towards you, and they'll bring the bear with it. So Right, exactly, yeah. Um, the, the one thing we always hear is what to do. Okay, we've done all those things, and for whatever reason, it hasn't worked. Now we're involved in a bear encounter. What is the right response? Is it true it depends on what kind of bear it is that you've run into? Well, I mean, they're, they're black bears, they evolved in a forestry, forested habitat, so if they feel threatened, they'll run into the trees or they'll go up a tree. Okay. Whereas, whereas grizzly bears, they evolved in an open prairie habitat, so there was nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide, so they had to actively defend their food source or their, their young. So that, that's the difference is that a grizzly bear be, tends to be more aggressive than a black bear if, if you encounter one. But the, the behavior between the two is, is very similar. Whenever they encounter a human, they react in the same way they would react to another bear. So you have what you call defensive behavior and you have non-defensive behavior. So you really need to know the difference between those. So. What should we look for? How do we tell? Um, defensive behavior, they, they, um, they vocalize, they'll swap the ground. Um, they, they may do a bluff charge. So they, they really are showing 
they have this ritualized behavior. They're really showing that they don't like you in their Yeah, it looks aggressive. Yeah. Whereas in non-defensive behavior, they're, they're, they don't show any of that type of, of behavior at all. They're very quiet. Uh, what they tend to do is not allow you to create, create distance between yourself and the bear itself. There's no sign of stress. They may appear to stalk you. They have this intense direct eye contact, and they're very quiet. And that, that's a difference. So they, they don't have that very aggressive behavior. And so with a defensive bear, you do not want to run. You want to keep your, your movement slow and deliberate. You talk calmly in, a, in an authoritative voice, and you slowly back away and try to increase that distance between you and the bear. And make sure you have your bear spray ready. And then if that bear does come towards you, you want to spray. And once it gets within 20 feet or, say, 5 meters of you, you want to spray that bear. And, 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 but you still want to stay calm. Don't shout. Don't, don't make a lot of noise and appear threatening. You want to be as non-threatening as possible. But be ready to, to spray that bear. So the most important thing and probably the hardest thing, Paul, don't panic, right? Exactly. Don't panic. And that's why if you talk in a calm voice, you're, you're, you're also trying to keep yourself calm. Right, you know? exactly, yeah. And just keep a lid on the situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, as you said, you can find out the information if there's bears in the area and, and go prepared. Paul, thanks for the info. Okay, sure. Thank you very much. That is Paul Fraser. Uh, some of you asking what group he's from. He is from Mountain View Bear Smart Society. And I checked out their website this weekend, and there's some really good information. They have people who are out and about within the province and within that jurisdiction reporting where they've spotted bears, what kind of bears they've spotted, where they were, things like that. So you can at least have some idea. Uh, you know, maybe there was a bear there last week, or maybe there was a bear there earlier this afternoon, those sorts of things, and give you some sort of heads up. But as he said, the most important thing is um, be prepared, right? Make noise, stay in groups, have bear spray with you, and know what to do if things go south. It's a, it's a scary situation. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.